Well, again, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can take a pew Bible and turn to page 808, and you can follow along with us as we study. Uh, Matthew's goal uh, in his gospel is this. Matthew's goal is to establish that Jesus is the King. That's Matthew's goal. He's the promised King. He's the promised Messiah. Matthew does this from the very beginning of his gospel, and he continues to do that through all 28 chapters of his gospel. In chapter 1, if you'll remember, uh, that Matthew introduced Jesus as a king by virtue of his birthright. and He, he traced very carefully the royal genealogy, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, moving right down to verse 17, where we see the name Joseph. We see that Jesus was born of a royal line, just as promised. He had the right to reign, the right to rule. We also saw that the virgin birth in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25, was a confirmation of this kingly right. God sovereignly intervenes to ensure that Joseph doesn't put Mary away. He doesn't divorce Mary, which would have disqualified Jesus from the royal line that was promised he would come through. God intervenes to ensure that Joseph marries Mary, which means Joseph takes Jesus as his son, making Jesus the heir of the throne of David, giving Jesus the right to the throne of the kingdom. A kingdom which will do what, church? Endure forever. In chapter 2, we see Matthew again emphasizing that Jesus is the king. Matthew shows us the royalty of Jesus when the wise men who are the official recognizer, if you will, of kings. Remember what we said last week? Who did they recognize and who did they not recognize? They didn't even recognize King Herod as a king. They came to Jesus to worship Him. They come and they recognize Jesus as the true King. They come and worship the true eternal King. Matthew also points out in his Gospel that the Old Testament prophecies that God laid down regarding the coming of a King. And Matthew points to these prophecies as another way to say that Jesus is undeniably this King. In the Old Testament, there are somewhere around 332 prophecies made concerning Jesus. But you never see His name in any of those prophecies. There's 332, depending on how you count and who you read, who has done this meticulous work. There's somewhere around 332 plus, give or take one or two, prophecies made concerning Jesus. And Matthew here picks out four of them in the first two chapters. One of them we saw uh, last week in chapter 2 verse 6 concerning where Jesus the King would be born. In our passage today, verses 13 through 23, we'll look at these other three Old Testament prophecies. And one of them, the last one's rather interesting. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So if you're looking at your handout, the main idea is this. The childhood of Jesus reveals the sovereign hand of God and the salvation of sinful humanity. That's what we have going on here. We have Jesus' childhood. So the main idea here is the childhood of Jesus reveals the sovereign hand of God in the salvation of sinful humanity. So if you're looking, again, at your handout, the outline is rather simple. The Exodus to Egypt, verses 13 through 15. The Exodus to Egypt. The wise men have found Jesus, right? That's where we left off. We know that. They found Jesus and they fulfill what they come to do. They come to worship and God reveals to them in a dream to don't go back to Herod, but go back to your home another way. And verse 13 picks up from there. It says, verse 13 says, Now when they, the wise men, when they had departed, uh, that word departed has the idea of 
there's danger involved. The idea is to run away from or to stay away from danger. That's what that word means. The wise men knew the danger, so they, they move away. They've been instructed to do that. They go back to their country another way. They departed. There was fear. There's danger involved here. And so they've been told to go back another way. And once they had gone, notice, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, This, this is the third dream uh, recorded in, now in Matthew's Gospel. And this is the third one. So we have this dream that comes to Joseph and the angel says, Behold... Or Matthew says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said. And he gives Joseph some very specific instructions. What does he give him? The instructions he gives him, he says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. That word flee is extremely important. Flee. In the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, that word is fuego. You're going, all right, I'm not going to remember that when I leave. That'll be perfectly all right. But here's what I want you to remember about that word. We get our English word fugitive from that word. We also get our word refugee from that word. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the royal king, is a what? A refugee. He is on the run. His family is running away from those who are trying to destroy him. And notice at the end of the verse, the instructions. Rise, take the child, flee to Egypt. You're going to be a refugee. You're going to be on the run. And at the end of the verse it says, And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Uh, God knew what Herod was up to, right? The wise men, uh, they were wise men, right? They might have had an idea, this Herod guy, there's something squirrely about him. Anybody kill his wife and his kids just because they think he's going to over... There's something wrong with this guy. But God knew Herod's plot, right? He couldn't fool God. The angel told Joseph, you go and you stay there, but I'll be back. You stay there until I come back, until I tell you, until I give you further word. So there's there's a promise. The angel says, you stay here, but... You stay here until I tell you, which that means what? The angels, there's going to be a follow-up to this. You stay here, and I'm going to come back. Verse 14, Joseph obeyed the angel. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He, he went. And when did he go? In the darkness. It says he went by night. They escaped. They're fugitives. They're refugees. They're on the run. Joseph took the child, the child who is God with us. Stop and think about that. Joseph and Mary are holding in their hands who? God. And God's a what? A refugee. He's on the run. Joseph took the child, the child who's God with us, the child who will save his people from their sins. I I read that this week over and over and I'm thinking... Just put yourself in Joseph and Mary's place. They've got God in their hands who's going to save them from their sins and they're on the run with God. They're fleeing. They're, they're, their son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is a refugee. Verse 15 says that Joseph and Mary and Jesus, it, they remained there until the death of Herod. They stayed until Herod died. If you'll skip down just for a second at verse 19, it picks that up. 
It says, but when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream uh, to Joseph in Egypt. So it was when Herod died that the angel came back and said, it's okay now. Now, now you can go. So sometime after they left, Herod died. And then the angel appeared, but why did they go to Egypt? Why was this prophecy? Of all the places to go, now in your mind, you're sitting here thinking, you should be thinking something about Egypt, right? And what is it? The people of Israel were there at one time, right? And they were what? Slaves. So why is there this prophecy to, to, to go to Egypt? Of all the places to go. To go to Egypt. Well, let's go back to verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's why they were there. That's why they weren't there. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's what, here it is. Out of Egypt I called my son. They were sent to Egypt, not just that they might be saved. That was a big part of it. That was a really big part of it. To, to keep Jesus, the Savior, who will save us from our sins, to keep Him alive. They were sent to Egypt, not just that they might be saved. God, God could have done that any way He wanted, Right? He could have saved Jesus' life any way He wanted to, but He chose to send them to Egypt. So why Egypt? It was because God wanted to validate the qualifications of Jesus being the Messiah. God does it again. He's validating. This is the one. And so He attached it to a prophecy. And it says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's why they were sent to Egypt. Because God... Years and years and years ago, there's been a prophecy made. And that prophecy's got to be what? If God said it, then what? It's got to happen, right? How how could the child come out of Bethlehem and out of Egypt unless God works it all out, right? God had set it up a long time ago. God runs history. Here's what you need to understand. God runs history. Everything is according to the plan of God. Everything. Everything. What does everything mean? Everything. God is in control. God is sovereign over world history. If you don't believe that, you just read the book of Daniel, right? Folks on Wednesday night, man, boom, 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 we see that. The Bible doesn't explain it all to us. It does in some detail, but we can read our Western civilization history and we can see all those things happen just the way they they pan out in the book of Daniel. And here's here's what I want to tell you. If God is sovereign over history, stop and think about it, folks. Nothing that has ever happened in the history of the world, past, present, and future, is out of the control of God. It's all in His hands. If God is sovereign over history, then He's sovereign over your life as well, right? This is yes. Nothing is outside the sovereignty of God. Say that with me. Nothing is outside the sovereignty of God. God had it set up long ago. God can be trusted. In all of life, God can be trusted. Even the things that cause us pain and suffering and sorrow, even in those things, God can be trusted. Those are hard times to trust God, right? Yes, I know. Those are hard times to trust God. But God is sovereign, even in those situations. In spite of the suffering and the heartache, isn't it a comfort to know that God is in control of that situation? God's not wringing His hands going, what in the world am I going to do? Right? 
It ought to bring us comfort. But God is not caught off guard by anything that comes in our life. He's in control. Verse 15 says, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is from the Old Testament, obviously. And some of you are thinking, well, where does that come from? Some of you have those really... You know, we got smartphones. Nowadays we got smart Bibles, right? They tell us where this is at. We just got to look down and we, we don't really have to know. It'll just tell us. That comes from where? Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. It says there in Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Those words sound familiar, right? Matthew, he's using those. Now, here's the question. Who does the son appear to be in Hosea 11.1? Let me read it again. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Who does the son appear to be in Hosea 11.1? Israel. The son in Hosea 11.1 is Israel. Who's the son in Matthew? It's not Israel, is it? It's who? It's Jesus. Now, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, did Matthew make a mistake? Did Matthew make a mistake in applying this to Jesus? Liberal theologians have a field day with things like this. They think, oh, I told you there's errors in the Bible. Right here's one. Here's an error. So the question is, why does Matthew apply that, that verse to Jesus? Well, in the immediate context of Hosea... We've said the son is Israel. Israel is my son. I called him out of Egypt, Hosea says. Any Bible scholar who studies the book of Hosea will tell you God is speaking of a time when he called Israel out of bondage. Where? In Egypt. Hosea is referring to the Exodus. God called Israel out of Egypt and God refers to them collectively as his what? Sons. A figure of speech. He's referring to all the people of Israel as his son. So, what about Matthew? What is he doing when he says this about Jesus being a refugee in Egypt and God's going to call him out? Matthew's telling us, listen, Jesus is the new Israel. Israel was the people of God, right? And what do we know about Israel? Stiff-necked people, right? Disobedient, unfaithful to God. And by the way, if you read the book of Hosea, you ladies are going to study that here in a few weeks. In the book of Hosea, God refers to Israel as a spiritual prostitute. That's how He refers to Israel. She's an adulteress. She's moved away. She has disobeyed God. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is the new Israel. What does Jesus do that Israel doesn't do? He obeys perfectly all that the Father says. Matthew's telling us that Jesus is the new Israel. Israel as a nation was God's disobedient son, but Jesus is God's only begotten son. Look over to chapter 3, verse 17. Let's turn a page there maybe, depending on your Bible. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Notice what God says about Jesus. This is my beloved, what? Son with whom I am, What? Well pleased. Nowhere will you see him saying that about Israel. He loved Israel, right? In spite of her stiff-necked disobedience. Let's read the book of Hosea. Hosea's life is a picture of Israel. Hosea is told by God, go marry a wife, and not just any wife, but marry a prostitute. And her name's Gomer. 
By the way, man, if you ever run into a woman named Gomer, just keep going. That's where it started bad when her name was Gomer. Bless her heart. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, you know where Gomer's at, right? You, not, when you hear the name Gomer, what do you think of? Gomer Pyle, United States Marine Corps. We used to refer to people, don't be a Gomer. We used to do that. Oh, don't be a Gomer. Come on, don't do that. And so he marries a woman named Gomer, and she's a prostitute. She prostitutes herself out, and she has children by these other people than her husband. And God tells Hosea, go get her. And Hosea goes and pays a price to buy her back because he loves her in spite of what she's done. Hosea is a picture of God reaching out to Israel and pulling her back from her spiritual prostitution. That's what the book of Hosea is about. I just hit the surface there. That's a wonderful book and you're going to enjoy studying that. But God, Matthew's saying this about Jesus. But, you know, this event took place in talking about Pharaoh taking the people of Israel out so you, you can leave Egypt. Now, what is it we know about just prior to Pharaoh letting the people of Israel go? What was the big event that took place that Pharaoh finally said, okay, you people need to get out of here. You can go. What took place? The death of what? The firstborn. The death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Why are the people of Israel spared in that time? Passover, right? Kill the lamb, spread the blood over the door, and the angel comes, he sees the blood, and he what? Passes over. Death passes over the people of Israel. All of that points to the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. By the way, that really happened in history, but it's pointing to something else, right? It's pointing to a lamb who would come and take away the sins of the world. So what's the, what's the comparison here in verse 15 in the Exodus of Israel? It's the death of the firstborn. That's the connection. The death of children. That event was what finally allowed the people of Israel to leave Egypt. And here in Matthew, it's the death of children that moves Jesus to Egypt so that He could leave Egypt and be the true deliverer, the one who would save His people from their sins. That's what's going on with that verse. That's why that is Matthew's making that connection and applying that to Jesus. So that brings us to the next point, verses 16 through 18. Matthew's quote of Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 15 sets the stage for... This second quote that we're going to see from the Old Testament in verses 17, excuse me, 16 through 18. So if you're looking at the handout, we see Herod's attempt to destroy Jesus. Remember, the words he just said there, or he says them for a reason. They're leading into what's coming next. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, Herod's been outwit, right? The wise men, he thinks, tricked him. But the trick's really on who? It's on Herod. Notice what it says there. Herod became furious. What do we know about Herod? Don't mess with Herod. You'll lose your head, right? Herod became furious. The idea of that word furious is to lose one's mind in anger. Herod became furious. He sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. According to excuse me, to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod put it together, right? He'd ask the wise men, where's this king going to be born? And 
They tell him and he kind of puts it all together and he discerns that, oh, if I kill every baby from two years old and under every male child, I've got to get the one if I kill them all. Now the population of... Let me stop here. I don't want to make light of children being killed here, okay? Don't walk away here saying the pastor just kind of jumped over that. and it, That's a horrible thing that happened, right? The population of Bethlehem and that surrounding region was about 1,500 people, okay? If you're like me, you're asking, why? And how could someone be so angry that they would kill children? How could that be? Is that what's going through your mind? It's what goes through my mind. You know, how do you get so angry that you kill children? How do you do that? Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, let say that again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Herod wants to know about the Messiah, right? He wants to know where the Messiah is to be born. He asked who? The religious leaders. And they go to the Scriptures, right, to answer Herod. Herod hears from who? God. If you'll notice, there's a lot of emphasis on Herod in Matthew's Gospel here in these, in these chapters. Matthew hears from God. What does Romans 1.28 say? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And here's the point. When man, Romans 1.28, doesn't see fit to acknowledge God, all sorts of evil will result. When man does not acknowledge God, here's what happens. Romans 1.28 God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Those children shouldn't have been killed, should they? Herod, he didn't see fit to acknowledge God, and what does God do? He just gives him over his, his debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When man dismisses God, God gives them over. That's a terrible thing, right? For God just to release you to your sinful self and let you just go headlong and do whatever comes to your mind. When man dismisses God, God gives them over. Listen to Romans 1, 29, 30, and 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. Man, that's, that's tough words, right? And that's no, no means inclusive of everything. You can't put everything in there that man will do. But those who don't see fit to acknowledge God, God gives them over. Then He gives you some things that we'll see happen. How can Herod do such a thing? He didn't acknowledge God. When you, when you live in a culture that no longer acknowledges God, it is not God who causes the children to be killed. It's not God who causes families to be destroyed by adultery. It's not God who causes 125,000 abortions a day in our world. 
Do you realize that since 1973 that 50 million babies have been killed? 50 million. Why is that? People didn't see fit to acknowledge God that life is precious and we shouldn't kill people. And what does God do? Just turns them over. When we see that happening, we say, where's God? He gave, he gave people over to their debased minds to do whatever ought not to be done. Now, will God hold them accountable? Yes, sir. There's coming a reckoning day. Fifty million people. God's not the cause of children. He's not the cause, again, of families being destroyed. It's not God who causes those things. When we cease to acknowledge God, all sorts of evil will happen. You know, and it troubles me to say this. We haven't seen nothing yet. You're probably saying, Pastor, it's Christmas. Come on now, talk about something else. Here's what I want to say. If that's what you're thinking, Christmas means hope. Hope for a world that does not acknowledge God. We, the church, have the hope. We have the gospel. We have the good news. Our government is not the solution to our country's problems. Jesus is the solution. The gospel is the solution. Don't give your responsibility as a Christian for hope to someone else. Can our government do better? Sure they can. And I hope they do. But I go to bed every night and I sleep fine. I hear the new tax packages coming. I didn't lose any sleep wondering if I'm going to lose any money or am I going to get any more money. Because who gives me my money? God gives me my money. If He chooses to give me less, then He gives me less. I sleep just fine knowing that I trust God. My my hope is not in what man can do. My hope is in the gospel. And my responsibility is to proclaim that hope to others. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew's quoting, obviously, from Jeremiah. That's what he says, in particular, chapter 31, verse 15. In that passage, we see the exile of Israel into Babylon. Babylon's army comes and they are ruthless. They are savages. And they took all the people to a place called Ramah, a village just north of Jerusalem. And in Ramah, they separated families. Children were taken from their parents. Imagine the weeping and the crying that would take place as families are torn apart. Never to see those children again. Those children never to see their mamas and daddies again. This is the kind of scene Matthew refers to when he describes the weeping and the crying over children who have died in Bethlehem. But there's a deeper significance here as to why Matthew refers to Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to verse 16 and 17 of that same chapter. (coughs) Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah tells the people that God has not forgotten them. So when Matthew quotes from Jeremiah, he's saying that in the midst of the tragedy here in Bethlehem, the pain is real, but there's hope for the future, and that hope is here. 
And that hope is Jesus. Jesus the King has come. Matthew says a new King is born. A King who will conquer death. A King who will heal our hearts. A new King who will reconcile us to God. Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31. And if you're familiar with that chapter, that's the chapter where we are promised that God will enter into a new covenant with with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to Egypt. Jesus escaped that horrible slaughter in Bethlehem. Jesus lived at this point in time so He could die. If Jesus, all He had to do to save us from our sin was to die, then this would have been as good a time as any, would it not? Right? If all Jesus had to do was die for our sin, this would have been just as good a time as any. But the cross is where it had to happen. As I said last week, Jesus had to die on the cross because it was there that atonement for sin must happen in that way. And by atonement, we mean that someone had to stand in the place of sinners. And that someone had to be a sinless Savior. And in order to live a sinless life, Jesus had to move from childhood into adulthood in order for that to happen. He had to live a sinless life for us. He was a child. He didn't know right from wrong. He had to grow up into adulthood and live a sinless life so He could live that life in our place. Remember, God says you need to be perfect because what? I'm perfect. And we can't be perfect. So Jesus has to live perfectly for us. He not only has to die for our sins, but He has to live perfectly for us. So Jesus goes to Egypt, but He'll return to secure the work of salvation. Matthew tells us, that He returns in a very odd way. Look at verses 19-23, through 23, the return to Nazareth. But when Herod died... Uh, let me just give you a little side note here. I googled King Herod, Bible, dead. To see how Herod died. And I'm not about to tell you. You google it for yourself and read it. It is not a pretty picture what happened to Herod when he died. I mean, it's gruesome. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, <coughs> excuse me, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Apparently there was people other than Herod because he said those. He wasn't the only one. There were others involved. Verse 21, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Verse 22 says that when Joseph heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Joseph was afraid to go back. Archelaus was the son of Herod. What's the old saying? The apple don't fall far from the tree. He was the son of Herod, and he was just as bad, if not worse, than his father. There's evidence, not in the Bible, but in historical records, that at one time Archelaus lined up 3,000 Jews at once and had them all slaughtered at one time. That's why Joseph had second thoughts about going back. And his thoughts were confirmed because... He was, in verse 22, warned of God in a dream. 
and withdrew to the district of Galilee. The angel said, go to Galilee. Don't go back. Then verse 23, here's the reason. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. You see those next two words? You need to underline those. When you see the word so that, what does that tell you? Here's why. That ha- here's why. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that... I love them two words. I'm ignorant. I need you to explain to me why. So that what was spoken by the prophets, notice there's an S there, might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. They were to go back to Nazareth. By the way, uh, Nazareth was Joseph and Mary's original home, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 4. That's where they were from. They were to return to Nazareth to fulfill the prediction of the prophets who said he would be a Nazarene. So why did they go back? Because the prophets had predicted Jesus will be a what? Nazarene. That statement, he shall be called a Nazarene, listen to me, it appears nowhere in the Old Testament. So don't go home today and try to find it. Because it ain't there. Alright? Look at verse 23 again. To fulfill which was spoken by the prophets, plural. He shall be called a Nazarene. You're, I, I'm thinking if multiple prophets said this, it's got to be somewhere, right? It's not in the Bible. If you're going to look in your Bible for the prophets who said it, you won't find them. They're not there. We have no record of this in the Old Testament. We have no record of any prophet ever saying this. You're going, uh-oh, we got another problem, right? Well, how do you explain this? I think it's rather simple. Are you ready? The prophet said it. It just never got written down until Matthew decided to record it in his gospel. The prophets didn't say it in the Old Testament. It isn't there. And how do I know they said it? Because Matthew said they said it. How did Matthew know? Anybody want to take a guess how Matthew knew? The Holy Spirit told him. Wow. Imagine that. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, Matthew wrote it down. Now we learn throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel that Nazareth... If you continue reading in the Gospel of Matthew, you you discover that Nazareth was not a very respectable place. In the Gospel of John, when a man named Nathaniel heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, does anybody remember how he responded? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You remember him saying that? Nazareth was low on the totem pole when it came to towns and cities in Israel. Nazarenes were ridiculed, scorned, and despised. The prophet Isaiah says of Jesus, Jesus comes from where? Nazareth. Isaiah says of Jesus in chapter 53, He was despised and rejected by men, and we did not value Him. That seems to be the point that Matthew is making here. The king who has come is going to be rejected by the world. He will be a Nazarene. He will be scorned. He will be ridiculed. He will be mocked. The king of the universe has come to save sinners. And from the very beginning, he's rejected by the very sinners he came to save. Herod, the chief priests, the scribes, the religious people, all of them rejected Jesus. They put themselves in a position of being enemies of Jesus. 
The truth is, we all do the same thing. The good guys here in Matthew chapter 2 are the wise men, Joseph and Mary. The bad guys are obviously who? King Herod and the Jewish religious leaders. And here's my question. Where do you fall in in that, those categories? As fallen men and women, listen to me, we are all King Herods. We're, we're afraid of Jesus. We're, we're afraid of Him invading our kingdom. We're afraid of Him invading our lives and our plans. By doing so, you have rejected Jesus. And can I say this? Some of you do that even after you profess Christ. You continue to do that. This is the very heart of what it means to be a sinner. And this is just who Jesus came to save. He came to save the Herods. He came to save the ridiculed and the mocked. Those who did that to Him, that's the ones He came to save. And here's what we need to understand. In our sin, the Bible tells us that we're enemies of Jesus. But Jesus came to be a new exodus to make rescue from sin possible. That's the whole point of Him going to Egypt and coming out. He's a picture of a new exodus to deliver people from their sin. You see, Christmas is not just about what happened in Bethlehem 2,017 years ago. The story of Christmas is about you and me. All of us are enslaved to sin, and that sin separates us from God. Man, we need to learn that. Recently at the Good News Club, I had a... One of the children walk up to me and we was having a conversation. And, you know, we was just talking. He looked up at me. He said, you know we're all sinners, right? I'm sitting there going, where did that come from? Oh, I know where he heard it behind that curtain where we're doing the Bible study. And I'm thinking, here we got this little fellow that's telling me we're all sinners and we can't get adults to understand that. All of us are enslaved to sin. That sin separates us from God. And if we die in our sin, we'll be eternally separated from God. Jesus, this true King, has come to give His life for you. He was despised and rejected for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead to bring eternal life to all who believe in Him. here's Here's what I'm thinking this morning. What a Savior. Man, what a Savior we have. A Savior whose days were set forth in this book. A Savior whose life was ordained by God for me and for you. And a Savior who willingly bore rejection and ridicule for you and I. Stop and think about that. Jesus, eternally God, who existed before the foundation of the world. Jesus has always been there. He existed in the glories of heaven comes down, God, and becomes a man, and it becomes a refugee, and goes and lives in a place where he, people despise him and hate him and ridicule him and mock him. He's a low-life, worthless Nazarene. And why did Jesus do that? He did it for us. He did it to save sinners. And my question is today, have you trusted in Jesus?
Do you want to face God one day and say, I didn't need Jesus? Or do you want to face God and say, Your Son saved me by His wonderful grace. And I came to you as your son, your daughter, because of Him. God, I stand before you today as a son and a daughter of God because of your son, Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. My exhortation to you today is this. Today is the day you need to come to Christ. You need to turn from your sin today and trust in Jesus. This is the good news that brings Christmas joy to a world that's in pain. Our world is in pain, right? Every day, every moment, our world is in pain. And you and I have the cure of that pain. It's the hope of Christ. Let's pray.